Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the revelation of yourself in the face of Jesus. Thank you for your word, timeless and sure, given to us, preserved for us, empowered by your Holy Spirit, living and alive. Father, I pray that it would penetrate us today. Father, may we encounter you today. Father, we want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We want to be shaped by you. Father, if that requires being convicted by your Spirit, being challenged and directed, then Father, we receive it. Father, I pray that in some measurable way, some real way, how we leave this place would be different than how we entered. Father, we would live for your glory. We would speak of your name. We would declare your kingdom. We would be bearers of good news, the gospel. Father, you'd be well pleased. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move through the book of Acts, we're seeing some amazing gospel encounters. We're seeing the, the hand of God at work. There are a lot of obstacles along the way, a lot of difficulties and challenges, a high cost to be paid. And yet we see perseverance for a cause that's worth it. And all the while, the hand of God, sometimes seen, sometimes unseen, is directing it all. In every city and place and, and every person and every encounter, God is at work taking his own name, taking his own story, taking the saving news of the gospel, the places he intends it to go and the order he intends it to go there. And so we've sort of progressed in these last several weeks from Thessalonica to a small town called Berea. And today in Acts chapter 17, we approach the, the capital city, as it were, and that's Athens. You know, when we saw the gospel going out in Thessalonica, we saw at least there was some basis there. Now, we know the people were a little bit indifferent towards it. We saw that the results in Thessalonica were somewhat mixed. In, in Berea, we saw that people responded to it enthusiastically. But what do you do in a culture, or what do you do with a person who's a skeptic, who's cynical? Maybe they don't have the religious background. Maybe they don't have all the information or the pieces of the puzzle that you're trying to put together. Or maybe they've heard some things and they just find fault with it. Well, where do you start there? Where do you start with the cynic or the skeptic or the person who knows nothing of the story at all that you're about to tell them? We're going to learn some lessons about that in Acts chapter 17. I called this message the alien word. One, that's because I'm not very creative. And two, it's because it's a reference to something that they said themselves of Paul's message that he gives them. In verse 20 of chapter 17, they said this message is something strange to our ears. You're bringing something strange here. This is alien. This is belonging to another person or place or time or culture. It's outside of what we know here. What can we learn about the gospel when it's an alien word? Well, let's look at this text here this morning. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. We'll be in verse 16 beginning. As we do, let me sort of set the context. First of all, we're not in Berea anymore. You know, I mentioned Berea. In their culture, it says in Acts 17, 11, these Jews were more noble. That doesn't mean their high birth or their high standing. It means the noble way in which they received Scripture. They received the Scripture in an honorable way. They valued the Scriptures highly. They revered it. They were noble in their response. So they were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness. How do we know they did that? Because they examined it. They wanted to know if these things that Paul was saying 
were true. That was a Bereans, man. That's, that's the sort of person you want to be able to talk to. That's the sort of congregation you dream of being able to preach to. People who are eager, they come hungry, they're ready, they're excited about it. They're putting the pieces together. They want to see where it all fits, and not just so they can know it, but so they can do it. That's the Bereans. And even in Thessalonica, they had some basis of understanding. So that when Paul got to Thessalonica, he could do this. He could reason with them, Acts 17, verse 2. He could explain to them. He could take the pieces of the scripture that they knew, and he could put them together in an orderly fashion. He could build a case for them. He could lay it out logically, ultimately proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant. He's the answer to everything that scripture alludes to and describes. It's all in Jesus. But Athens is different. This is a different animal, different people, different culture, different understanding is Athens. You see, in Berea, those folks were receptive to the gospel, a ready audience, ready to be taught, eager to hear. The Thessalonian culture, somewhat hardened, somewhat indifferent, somewhat mixed. Again, they had some understanding, but not the same level of interest. But in Athenian culture, by and large, this culture was ignorant of the gospel, what he was sharing to them, again, was strange. We've never heard this before. Tell us more about this. This is new to us. This is unique to us. What do you do with the gospel when the people you're sharing it with know nothing of what you're saying, nothing of what you're talking about? Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's pause there for a minute. Athens wasn't on Paul's original agenda. This wasn't part of his planned schedule. This was part of God's agenda. And now detoured to Athens only because he was run out of Berea by some angry Jews and forced to, to stay here just for a momentary period. In Athens, he sees something. And the Bible uses a very strong word here. It provoked him. What did he see here? He saw a city full of idols. One historian notes that in the time of the apostle Paul, it was easier to meet a God in Athens than it was to meet a man. About 10,000 citizens and about 30,000 statues of so-called deities in the city of Athens. And when Paul encounters that religious culture that's simultaneously a pagan culture, the Bible says it did something in him. It, it provoked him. Now, I've got a lot of things I want to share with you today, and you're going to be drinking from the fire hydrant in just a moment. But this is a point I don't want us to miss. I think it's something about me and you that has, that's been lost in our time. We've become so conditioned by our culture. We've been so acclimated to what's all around us that it no longer provokes us. You see, when Paul saw all of these idols, whether they be statues or temples or whatever it may be, it stirred something in him to anger not sort of just fleshly, you know, these people, these ignorant people, these stupid people, I, I despise these people. But a righteous anger and indignancy because the one true God that he knew full well was denied here. He did not receive his rightful place. And people now lost in confusion and darkness did not give glory to the one true God who deserves all the glory. Where is that sense of provocation among Christians today? You know, when we look around... And not just in faraway places, but in close by places where God is not known and God is not honored. Is there anything in that that stirs us up for the sake of God? That God should be honored here. God should be known here. 
We should make the one true God known to them here. There ought to be something that provokes us. If we're walking faithfully with the one true God and we love him and we care about his namesake and we care about his glory, something about our culture ought to provoke us to do something. Instead, I'm afraid more often than not, we're just indifferent. We're indifferent or we're casual. We're just not moved. But he was provoked. What did he see when he went to Athens? I I pulled just a couple of pictures. These these are not ones I took myself, though I've got a bunch of these when I stood in these places. But I want to give you a sense historically of what Paul might have been looking at this is a depiction of the Acropolis in the city of Athens. If you go visit Athens today, this is by far its most uh, notable landmark. Um, hard to miss from any point in the city. And the Acropolis in the day of Paul would have looked something like this. A, a, a community, as it were, a, little, a, a, a number of temples and places there, the most prominent of which would have been the temple to the goddess Athena, the namesake of the city. You had a sanctuary to Zeus and various other worship sites there on the top of the Acropolis looking over the city. Down from the Acropolis, you can see an outcropping, a little stone outcropping called the Areopagus. That's also translated Mars Hill. And so you can see the location of Mars Hill from the, from the Acropolis. In Paul's day, that area, Areopagus, Mars Hill, would have looked something like this. Here's a way that it will look as he passes through the city or passes there to that Mars Hill. And from Mars Hill, where we see this message that he's about to give, this would have been his point of view. Something like this, looking up to that Acropolis, to that outcropping. If you go to Mars Hill today, you'll find a couple of interesting features there. Someone has erected a wooden cross. It's not a permanent structure by any means, so I don't know how long it's been there or how long it will remain. Maybe eight or ten feet in, in height. You'll also find an inscription in bronze into the stone there of Acts chapter 17 still uh, remaining. And so as we stood there several years ago when Cecilia and I visited Greece, just thinking about that culture that Paul was seeing and thinking about why he said what he said there, it all stems out of that verse 16. I'm provoked. How can I not speak of the one true God in a world like this? So look what happens, verse 17, seeing what he saw. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. One was his custom. Wherever he went, he went first to those synagogues. He was a Jew, and he wanted to show them that the faith that they held, the beliefs that they held, the practices that they held, they all led to Jesus. And so he wants to give that message. But in the marketplace, you find two different categories of people. The only two philosophical schools you'll ever find mentioned in the the Scriptures. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say. When it says babbler, it's not that Paul was communicating things that couldn't be understood. It's that he was saying things they'd never heard before, something odd to their ears. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him to, brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul, seeing a city lost in darkness, saturated in paganism, seizes this opportunity to share the gospel. What do we know about Athens? Athens already was the intellectual, philosophical capital of the world. So many schools of thought developed there. So many philosophers whose names you probably remember uh, from your own high school or college education. So much centered in Athens that affected so much of the rest of the world. And though it was an intellectual, philosophical capital, it was a pagan culture, 
thoroughly, utterly, completely pagan. The Athenians, I guess you could describe what they had, was religion. They were religious for the most part, but they had no sense of God, nor the scriptures. Religious, so in other words, their religion was a man-made religion, and it's the essence of idol worship, creating, concocting a God by my own design, for my own purposes, of my own understanding, that actually I control and manipulate. These were the gods of ancient Greece. And so Paul addresses these three groups. Consider the difference for a moment, okay? So it says first he spoke to the Jews and the devout people. When it says the devout people, those are typically Gentiles, Greeks, that found interest in the God of the Jews, found interest in those Old Testament scriptures, as we would call them, the devout people. This group of people had much of the spiritual furniture in their mental house already. They had certain facts already. God is creator. God is judge. They had the storyline of deliverance and redemption from the Exodus. They had many of the pieces. They had the prophets. They had the law. What they didn't have was the right understanding of Jesus. So what Paul could do with them is in reason with them, he could prove to them that the ultimate fulfillment of everything they were looking for is actually Jesus. See, that's a whole different context. The furniture's in the house. It just wasn't arranged properly. And so if Paul could come and put everything in a right layout that finally led them to understand Jesus. That's how he approached them. That's why we saw in his approach to the Thessalonians, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It's necessary that you see he's the Christ. Now, whereas those Jewish people and those devout people were religious but not Christian, they were religious, they had some form of religion, not Christ. The other two groups that are described here were neither. Not religious and certainly not Christian. They were secular. They were skeptics. Their point of view was entirely manward, not Godward, and their view of religion was, was skeptical and, and cynical. You, know, you might agree with me that we live in a current age of skepticism. Would you agree with that? A lot of cynicism towards religion today, a lot of skepticism. In fact, we see just growing atheism in the world today. It's not new. This age of skepticism that, that you and I live in is not a modern reality. This has been around at least since the time of the Apostle Paul and the early church. It began in places like Athens, where they gave up any pursuit of knowing the one true God in order to just pursue their own pleasures, their own desires, what satisfies them, the here and the now. And these two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, both had ultimately the same end in mind. They wanted to be happy in this world. They wanted to be happy with what they could see and feel and touch. They just went about it in two very, very different ways. The Epicureans. The Epicureans developed what we call now hedonism. The idea of hedonism most simply is if it feels good, it is good. Do whatever feels good to you. And when we think of Epicurean, we might think of someone who enjoys fine food or fine wine or fine this or fine that. To an Epicurean, truth is found here. Achieving pleasure and avoiding pain. Does that not sound like the fruits, I mean, the, the roots of the modern fruit of American culture? Finding pleasure, avoiding pain in any, other, in any way possible. Their goal is always to sort of find it in balance because they recognize this. If your whole life is built on the pursuit of pleasure and you never find it, what do you have? Frustration. If your whole life is built on the pursuit of pleasure and you get everything that you think you want to satisfy you and it doesn't, then what do you have? You have boredom and discontent. So finding this balance through life of, of pleasure without pain. The ancient Epicureans, much like the modern sort of philosophy that they began, they were hostile towards religion. 
See, an Epicurean, a pleasure seeker, a hedonist, considered religion to be restraining. They considered religion to be manipulative. They considered religion to be controlling and something that instills fear in people. Does that sound much like our culture today? We don't want to be controlled. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what brings us pleasure. The highest aim, the greatest good, is what feels good to me. Now, the Stoics were different than Epicureans. The Stoics had adopted a different sort of life philosophy. They believed that everything that happens in the world happened from mechanistic, external causes. Determinism ruled the world. They had no control over it. The only freedom that you have in this world, according to a Stoic, was how you react to things, how you respond to things, how you feel about things. Whatever's going to be is going to be, and you can't do anything about it. But what you can control is your, your attitude. You can be bitter, discouraged, or defeated, or you can develop what was their highest aim. The highest aim of a Stoic was coming to the state of being called imperturbability. Can't be perturbed anymore. It will not affect me. It will not bother me. You could sort of summarize their life philosophy like this. Ultimately, life is meaningless, so don't let it get you down. Do you know some people who feel that way, who think that way? you got no control over anything. You're just drifting through life on the wind in a cloud. Just try to do the best with what you can. Hang in there. That's a Stoic philosophy. But in those two cultures, or in those three groups, Paul finds a unique opportunity here. Because what he's saying is so different than that. He's saying something that's so different than you have no control over anything and life is meaningless and so just hang in there too. The only thing worth pursuing in life is pleasure or avoiding pain. No, he's got something so different. So in this unique opportunity, we see Acts 17, 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So there in this public forum, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where these sort of discussions and debates were commonplace every day. He says, you know what? In this moment, I'm going to interject truth. I'm going to talk about God. I'm going to give them theology proper, the study of God, the revelation of God. So look at his message that he gave on Mars Hill. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Of all the pantheon of gods that the Greeks worshipped, revered, feared, they weren't sure they could cover them all. They weren't sure that they had mentioned them all, listed them all, knew them all. So he said, in case there's another... In case we've missed any God, we'll do a temple to an unknown God. And Paul begins to lay out something about this God that's so different than, than their understanding of God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's break down Paul's message. We'll just sort of simplify it here for a second and summarize it. First thing Paul is teaching them is this. There is a God. Not many gods. There is a God. He starts off with a very emphatic, this God. There is a God, and this is who he is, and this is what he's like. And he doesn't shy away from theology. Listen, let me just step out on a soapbox for a moment. It seems that more and more, particularly in, in church culture, and preaching culture, teaching culture, that we see theology as something to be avoided. It's hard to understand. People aren't interested in it too much. It's not popular. It doesn't meet practical needs. It doesn't deal with the stuff I'm dealing with in my life this week. That's because your vision of life and the world and God is too small. To understand God rightly is the most important thing we can do. To understand who he is and what he does is absolutely critical to our understanding. Was there ever a time since Jesus came into the world that people understood theology without it being explained to them? No. Was there ever a time where it was easy? No. Was there ever a time where people didn't need to teach and explain it? No. Has there ever been or will there ever be a time where it's not necessary? No. We have to teach about God, the deep things of God. We have to magnify his name. That's what it means to glorify him. Instead of minimizing him into some accessory to your life, some fringe benefit to the things you're already pursuing in life, Magnify God for who he is in Scripture. There is a God. This is who he is, and this is what he's like. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He said this. He says, I do not argue with atheists. I simply say, you know very well that God exists. Your problem isn't that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you can't stand him. The sin of man is not atheism. It is religion, which is how we distort God's revelation of himself. We shape a deity in our own image, and we make houses for him with our own hands, and we serve and worship the creature rather than the creator, exchanging the glory of God for a lie. That's Romans 1.25. Paul told the Romans that God so manifests himself that every human being knows God, and knowing God, we refuse to worship him as God, neither are we grateful, and we turn ourselves to idols. That's Romans 1.21. That's what religion is. The substitution of a false God for the true God. Well, listen to how Paul has described God in this passage. And that's where he starts when he has a chance to speak to them. Again, this is a culture that's largely pagan. Those that pursue pleasure as the main end of life. Those who think life is meaningless and they have no hope in it. Listen where he begins. Not with them. Not with their needs. Not with their purpose or their value. He starts with God. He starts with the highest and greatest peak. He starts with God himself. What does he say about God? God is the omnipotent creator. Even the place where we stand today is because of God. Everything that you see, that's God. When you look at yourself, you're looking at what God has done. He's omnipotent creator. God, he is universal Lord. Where is God not in authority? Heavens and earth are all his. He's the universal Lord. He's not localized like your many gods. He's not limited in his power and scope like your gods. He is the universal Lord. He's the sovereign sustainer of everything. Everything 
is by him and through him. We, in him, we live and move and have our being. He's the reason the world works as it does. He's the reason things function as they do. He holds it all together. He's the divine designer. It's he that established a plan for this world, both bringing it into being, carrying out its purposes all the way to the end, working in time and space. That's God. He's the eternal father. Overall, we are his offspring. Even your poets recognize that there is a God over us, some sort of God's over us. We are the offspring of an eternal father. He's also a gracious redeemer. He alone offers and affords salvation, and he is the righteous judge, the one who created, the one who established by his own good design, for his own plans and purposes, for his own glory's sake, will bring everything to an account. He is the righteous judge. That's who he is. I didn't include this exhaustive list because it could take up a lot of white space on your notes, but for those of you with a fast pen, consider some of these attributes that we see in Acts 17 of God. Not just who he is, but what he's like. What is this true God like? The one that you think is unknowable. What is this true God like? Well, first, he is eminent. The eminence of God means that he is in fact knowable. He's not far from any of us. He is, in fact, available to us. He is, a, he is a personal God. He's not a God of stone. He's not a God of silver or gold. He's not a God in that temple that you can't know. He's, he has eminence. Even in his eminence, though, our God has transcendence. He's not like these gods that you can just walk up to. He's not like a statue on the street. He exists exalted. He has control over everything. He's above it all. He's beyond it all. He's transcendent to it all. We also see God's immutability. He's unchanging. He's always been this way. He'll always be this way from beginning to end. He's God. His sovereignty, the rightful rule of God over everything because it's his. He made it. He's a judge over it. He's Lord of all. He's sovereign. Here's your good theological word. His aseity, the aseity of God, that he's sufficient unto himself. He's self-existent. He has no creator. He was not hewn by your hands. He was not conceived of by your mind he's self-existent god what about the eternality of god god who created time and space he's lord of it he exists above it and apart from it but when he chooses he can enter into it to accomplish his purposes times and spaces and people he's omnipotent he's all-powerful he's omnipresent he's everywhere he's omniscient he knows everything and then his infinitude, the infinitude of God. God has no limits. He has no restrictions. There are no edges. You never get to the end of him. He's describing God. This is theology proper. He's laying down heavy things for them. His first encounter with people who have never heard of Jesus, don't know the Bible that he is referencing, have no conception of the God that he believes in, his first message to them is weighty. Do you see that? Do you see how weighty it is? And it's all about God. And in the end, the only conclusion you could draw if you're listening is this. What he's describing is strange for this God, this foreign God, is nothing like our gods. How could you draw any other conclusion? It's not like any of these gods up on the hill. Even Zeus, the king of the gods, the father of gods, does not have these attributes. He does not have these qualities. He is not like this God. What is Paul saying to them? This God that I described to you, this knowable God, this eminent God, 
This, is, this God is both why you seek him and simultaneously what you seek. Why are we having this conversation today about God? Why do you have 30,000 depictions of gods in your city? Why do you have the highest peak of your city dedicated to a plenitude of gods? Why is that? Why is there something in you that makes you want to know and seek a God? Because God put it there. He describes that very clearly. It's God who did this for you. God who's self-revealing in creation. God who's intentional in your design. Even your poets recognize what I'm saying here. God is why you seek, but he's ultimately what you seek. The answers that you're looking for can be found in the one true God. Why do you seek God? God. What is it that you most need as God created you to need by his own design? God. God, God stirs this up in him, as we saw in Romans chapter 1 that Sproul alluded to. God makes himself known in creation. That's called general revelation. And in that self-revelation of God, general revelation of God, no one is faultless before him. No one is guiltless before him. We cannot deny that there's a God. The Bible says that God has wired us to know him, to desire to know him, to seek him. And the fulfillment of that is him. What he puts in us, he fulfills for us. And then he says this, the times of ignorance are done. The times of ignorance have been replaced with a call for repentance. No longer can you claim ignorance. No longer can you say, I have no idea, don't, no one's ever told me, I don't know. The times of ignorance are over. This is the gospel era. This is the Great Commission era. God is making himself known, not just through general revelation, but through specific revelation. What we know of God now has been revealed fully in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God revealed in the face of the Son. Ignorance is over. You can no longer claim ignorance. The only right response to who God is, is Repentance. When God is so elevated, so magnified, uh, so exalted, a picture of him painted so great, so vast, the only right response to that would be repentance. I have refused this one true God. I have rebelled against this one true God. I have not believed in this one true God. I will one day stand before this God. Repentance in the face of the Almighty. And then at the end, he speaks of resurrection can listen to his words the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead what is our assurance what is our certainty that God is God and one day he will call all the world to account before him it's the resurrection of jesus it's the sine qua non of of our faith it's the one thing that can't be left out it's the one thing that's most essential absolutely necessary the resurrection of jesus so he says how do we know what is our proof what is our proof that what i'm sharing you is not just another concocted man-made religion what's the proof that this new thing i'm giving you is not something that we have made up Something to hold in equal standing to your Greek philosophy or to your Roman philosophy, to your Stoicism or to your Epicureanism. What's different? It's Jesus, and it's Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The Bible says that's going to be the case. This is always going to be a hindrance for some. It's the most critical issue. It's the one that can't be removed. What's unique about Jesus 
He's raised. What's unique about the Christian faith? Our salvation is based on what has been done for us, not what we do to earn it. It's what Jesus has done for us and given to us. Some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. Some rejected outright. Some wanted to understand more. Some were just beginning that, that process. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Scripture lists these specifics because these people would be instrumental in the early church, and they would give historicity, veracity to the claims or to the, to the records of the early church. No, real believers here, and it started here. Now, as you listen to that message that I gave you, what Paul shared, what's missing? What, what was missing from Paul's declaration? And again, I want you to envision the scenario here. Juxtaposed against this pantheon of false gods, on the stone outcropping where public debate was commonplace, where he could easily point to and illustrate exactly what he's talking about here. And he's addressing skeptics and cynics and unbelievers. What's missing? Did you notice anything? He doesn't mention love. He doesn't mention the cross. He doesn't mention saving grace. Now, there's common grace in it. If you understand the difference, common grace is that grace that God affords all people everywhere, the reason why we can draw breath, the reason why we live, the reason why we exist, the reason why the sun rises and sets and rain falls and all those things, the general goodness of God that everyone gets to enjoy. Common grace is implicit in what he said, but saving grace doesn't really mention it. He doesn't even mention Jesus, except at the very end. And even then, not by name, he says, a man. He and him. In fact, you could say, and I think rightfully so, that what Paul shared with them on that hill wasn't exactly the gospel. It wasn't exactly the gospel. It wasn't exactly good news. In fact, I think you could rightfully argue that what Paul shared with them on that hill that day was bad news. What you believe is false. Your philosophies were vain. Your whole theory of life is empty. And to think that you can only live for this life and avoid the judgment of the Almighty is tragic. Now what I would offer you is this. What Paul actually gave in that moment on that hill was bad news. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming from the God who made this world, including you. There's judgment coming from the God who's sovereign over everything, including people and time. There's judgment coming that's unavoidable, inescapable, and I can guarantee it's real because of Jesus. So what do you take away from that? What, what do we do with this then? How, how do we take this in and apply it in some way to our current situation, the world we live in, a world full of cynics and skeptics, mockers and unbelievers, agnostics and atheists, people who are just simply ignorant who have never, ever heard the gospel? What do we take from this? I'm going to give you a few thoughts. I want you to wrestle with these. First one is this. The weight of the bad news must necessarily precede the worth of the good news. The weight of the bad news must necessarily precede the worth of the good news. I did a little exercise that was thoroughly discouraging this week. I went through a number of church websites Names that you would know and some that you wouldn't. Just to see how the gospel is presented. 
Now, I get that's not everything they say or do or preach, but it's the first taste. It's the, it's the first word that they get out because it's on their website. If I'm a cynic or a septic, skeptic or a searcher or a seeker or an unbeliever or an atheist or agnostic, whatever, and I go there and I read this, that's the first taste I'm going to get. And almost invariably, it starts in the same place. Me. My thoughts, my feelings, my needs, my wants, all those things. And how God has answered all those things that I'm already seeking apart from him. And we try to get this good news of how much God loves me and how important I am, how valuable I am, and, and how significant my life is without ever setting the context. Do you understand that the ultimate issue is not you? It's God. And you've heard me say this again and again, but if you're new to us, then let me repeat it for your sake. The primary reason that you should believe in the God of the Bible, the God as Paul described him, is because he's true. Not because of any feeling that evokes in you or any effect that you think that's going to give your life those are secondary it's the fact that this is truth i lay this out to you this is god this is what he's done this is what he's doing in the world today this is how he's operating and drawing you to him he's so close you can know him and if you don't you're going to be judged by him it's true the weight of the good news has to be for i mean the weight of judgment and sin and the heaviness of God has to weigh on a person first before they can see the worth of the good news. Do you see that? As I elevate God and I make plain the seriousness of sin, do you see the incredible treasure that the good news becomes? And that's why I share with you point number two. Before Paul could communicate the gospel, he had to commend the gospel. Before he could talk about the love of God revealed to us in the cross, God loved us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those are Paul's words written in Romans. Before he could talk about the love of God depicted in the cross of Christ and the grace of God afforded to us in the resurrection of Christ, before we could communicate the aspects of the gospel, remember we've talked about these again and again through the gospel of Mark and through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you know, the essence of the gospel Jesus Christ come into this world who lives perfectly, dies sacrificially, is raised physically, appears bodily, and is returning again visibly. This is good news for us who believe. Before he could do that, he had to commend the gospel. When I say commend, I'm talking about presenting as suitable for your acceptance, for your approval. I've got to show you why you need the gospel first. Before I start sharing the good news, and God's great love for you in Christ and what Christ did for you, I have to show you why you need this and why it's of infinite worth to you. And so he commends the gospel to them. We could rightly say that what Paul did on that hill was pre-gospeling. It's pre-gospeling. You see, what Paul is doing is he's setting context here. He's setting context for the gospel. There's no understanding of the good news of Jesus and his resurrection unless you have context. And he's establishing the context of the gospel. Let me give you some snippets in more uh, modern terms of, of kind of what I mean here. It's just still a vivid picture in my mind. Um, on the one trip that I've taken to India and, and spent some time with, uh, with an indigenous missionary there. I mean, a fireball of a guy who was fearless in sharing the gospel anywhere with anybody at any time. Um, we were going out on that first day to evangelize, and I got paired up with him. And so we get out of the car, we walk into a store, and he just looks at me, and he says, okay, go. 
It's like, go? What do you, how about you go? I'll watch you, and the next time I'll go. How about we do it that way? But I remember one of the encounters that we had as we were going home for the evening. He said, do you mind if we stop at one of my neighbor's homes and pray for them? His daughter was injured in an accident and asked me if I would come and pray. And so, no, that's fine. So we went into the house to pray and happened to notice on top of their television set was one of those pictures. I don't, I don't call it a picture of Jesus because I don't think Jesus looks like that, but a depiction of Jesus. Okay, so there's a depiction of Jesus around the TV set. And so after we had prayed in there, I came, when we came out, I said, so that family, they're Christian, right? He said, oh, no, 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 they're Hindu. I said, wait, they had a picture of Jesus on top of the TV set. He said, we have to understand in Hindu culture, they have many gods. And it's not difficult for a Hindu person to simply accept Jesus as another god. For them, that's sort of like Acts 17. It's sort of like, you know, the unknown God. In case we miss one, your God, yeah, let's have him too. I mean, it can't hurt us. We'll pray to a lot of them, and if we'll, you'll pray to yours, we'll pray to ours. It's not hard for a Hindu to just add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. Okay, so let me ask you a question. So if I go into that house and I see the picture of Jesus, and I know they're praying to Jesus, but they're also praying to Vishnu and so many other gods, can you say by any biblical measure that that family is Christian? Well, of course not. They don't understand the context of the gospel. What's the context of the gospel that Paul lays out in Acts chapter 17? There is one God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the orchestrator of everything that's ever happened and ever will happen. He's, devolved, he's involved intimately in your life. He's drawing you to him. He's revealing yourself to him. He's calling you to repentance in the face of who he is, and one day you're going to stand before him. That's utterly unlike a Hindu worldview. The only worldview that presents the right context for sharing the gospel is a biblical worldview. That's why I cringe at some modern teaching and preaching in some major churches that tries to unhitch Christianity from the Old Testament. A biblical worldview starts in Genesis. It starts with God, maker of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created us. And then it doesn't go very long into our rejection and rebellion of God and sin and the fall and its devastating effects. And immediately God's grace that God will orchestrate the means by which this can be ultimately undone. And the end of Scripture is the reversal of what happened at the beginning of Scripture, a new heaven and a new earth. A biblical worldview, not a Western worldview, but a biblical one, is the only context in which the gospel makes sense. That's why when Paul was talking to Thessalonians, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining things to them, proving to them that Jesus must be the Christ. It has to work this way. This is the biblical story arch. So that's what we have to do. The only context is biblical worldview. So if you're just simply offering up to someone who's already pagan in their thinking, well, God loves you. Jesus loves you. I remember a, a certain pseudo-evangelist. You could watch his videos, and he would go around doing these dubious healings with people. Most of them had to do with, you know, making someone's leg about a quarter of an inch lo uh, longer so it'll match the other one, you know, that sort of thing. And his pronouncements were never gospel. They were not pre-gospel. They were not sin and judgment. They were not God or theology. They were just simply proclamation. God loves you, brother. God loves you, brother. Is that all there is? It's not that it's not true. It's that it's insufficient. And it doesn't set the context for the gospel. So I leave you with this final challenge. If we'll do like Paul did, if we'll start the conversations at the right place, and the right place is always God, God is the gospel. The beginning of the gospel is God. Start the conversation at the right place. Who is God? Who is God? What is this God like? What does this God demand from me? Then you pray that it'll continue all the way to the right conclusion. 
And the right conclusion is this, how do I respond to the one true God? This one true God, sovereign over all creation, because he made it. Judge over the living and the dead. Instrumental, active in every part of this world that we enjoy. In him we live and move and have our being. This God, when I start to see this God, how will I respond to him because in the end, that's all that's going to matter. Because I'm not going to stand before my idea of God or my opinion of God. I'm not going to stand before some religion's depiction of God or some church's understanding of God. In the end, I'm going to stand before God Almighty. I'm going to stand before the one that Paul declared in Acts chapter 17. In that moment, it's going to matter completely how I understood him and what he expected of me and that I have responded rightly to him. Because the Bible says there will be a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Those Epicureans and those Stoics, those Cynics and those Skeptics, those unbelieving Jews, those people who worshiped at the foot of Athena or cowered before their image of Zeus will stand before the Almighty and they will know this is God. I want you to bow today. I want you to bow before that God today. Know him today. Know this one true God and the life that he gives. For he alone, he alone is God. I'm going to ask you if you'd pray with me this morning, just all over this room, as we pray. Father, I pray that for some today would be a day of equipping, as we think about conversations that need to be had, or prepare ourselves for conversations that we have no idea that are coming. I pray we would not be shy, not be reticent, not be unwilling to have deep conversations about who God really is to tell the truth about God, to not be ashamed of you, God. Father, I pray that we'd be wise and careful and understanding the times in which we live. Perhaps, Father, we can find common ground with someone. You believe there's a God, I believe there's a God. You're looking for truth, I'm looking for truth. Whatever it may be, but God, I pray that we would not reduce ourselves to the thinking of this world or the philosophies of our time, but Father, we would extol the one true God, you. We talk about you, who you are, what you have done, what you're doing, what you will do. We'll magnify you. And Father, as we magnify you, we will magnify the worth of Jesus and the gospel, the good news. So Father, equip us that way. Give us boldness that way. Give us wisdom that way and understanding that way. And Father, I also pray for someone listening here today. I Father, forgive us for all of our insufficient, perhaps even near idolatrous versions of the gospel. For those times we've misrepresented you, for those times in which we have not glorified you as you are, for those times where we've tried to make you more palatable, or acceptable to this culture. We've, we've reduced you. We've taken away the weightiness of you. Father, forgive us for that. And I pray that someone hearing today would, would be wowed by what the Apostle Paul said, what your word said about who you are. And now, just as that crowd could no longer claim ignorance, now they'll say, I, now that I see and now that I know these things, I bow before you, God. I turn from my life opposed to you 
ignorant of you. And I want to worship you. I want to know you. Father, now ready for the gospel. Now, recognizing the vastness of God, the certainty of judgment before him, your place in this world, in light of the Almighty, what must I do to be saved? And now, Father, ready their hearts to hear about Jesus, the Savior that you have sent, in the hopelessness and despair of this world. For those who would waste their life on pleasure, or those who think they must simply endure the pains of this life and make it through, comes Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you'd ready them for the true gospel, to put their faith in Jesus, who gave his life for their sake, who died for their sins, who was raised so that they could have life and not die, and grants them his righteousness so they can stand before you, God, one day clothed perfectly in Christ, acceptable to you. Father, have your way. We want to make much of you. Stir up in us a desire to know you better so that we love you more, so that we worship you as we ought. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.